Good afternoon. Welcome to the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service. It is Monday, May 11th, and we have a live broadcast for you today with Dr. Joe Schwartz, who's going to be talking about supplements for the full hour. So, Dr. Joe, welcome. Thanks very much. Well, our world is changing, isn't it? Uh, we get the impression that it's actually blowing apart. We've never experienced anything like this before. Uh, I've been uh, giving talks like this at the library for something like 30 years, but uh, never before a situation where I don't see the audience. But I know that you are out there somewhere. Okay, let's get down to matters at hand about this uh, changing world. And of course, it is changing because of this. This is the picture that we have come all too familiar with. This is the coronavirus and those little outcroppings there are proteins and that's the protein it uses to attach to cells and a little bit more about that in a few minutes. But everything seems to be changing. We used to go to Times Square and of course I would go there often because I'm a big Broadway fan and this is what it looked like. But no more, that's what Times Square looks like now basically devoid of people. And if you happen to see anyone there, chances are they will be wearing a mask. Not only are they wearing a mask, but uh, they will stay apart from other people. And we have learned how to physical distance. And I think that's the term that we should be using, uh, not social distance. We don't want to be socially isolated from people, but we do want to be physically isolated. This is the world that we are living in now. And how did this happen? How did this virus affect the whole world the way that it has done? I can't give you a conclusive answer, but I can uh, tell you the predominant theory. And the predominant theory is that it started with bats. Bats harbor all kinds of viruses and they poop a great deal and they gather in large numbers, they defecate, and very often they can contaminate other animals with their feces. Now, it turns out that uh, bats harbor a number of viruses, and one of these is a very close match to the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus, the one that we are worried about, but it is not an exact match. In fact, it doesn't have exactly the, the protein that is needed by this virus to latch onto cells to infect them. So what happened? Well, the theory is that there was an intermediate. So some other animal was exposed to the bat poop and the genes in the bat poop mingled with genes in the animal and there was a mutation and uh, the animal actually had the genes for the protein that is needed to latch onto cells. And there's this mixture uh, between the bat poop and viruses in, in the animal uh, created the uh, novel virus. What animal? Well, the one that is being looked at is the pangolin. And I would suspect that most of you up to <laughs> recent times have never heard of this curious looking animal. I certainly hadn't. Uh, First, uh, uh, I guess the first time I ever heard of it was in February when we started to hear about the transformation of this virus, possibly in the pangolin. And what an interesting animal the, uh, the pangolin is. <clears throat> Looks like a, 
a cross between an armadillo and an anteater. And uh, it uh, generally is, is relatively small, uh, as you can see here, but some of them can grow to the size of almost an alligator. And it uh, turns out that it has a protective mechanism. When a predator approaches it, a pen pangolin is coated with these scales and it kind of looks like armor. And it actually does uh, look like armor. It actually behaves like armor. And the, the major predators like tigers, leopards, uh, lions underbelly. So it's a protective mechanism. On the other hand, it turns out that man is a predator that the pangolin cannot protect itself against because it can be very easily picked up. And uh, unfortunately, it is easily picked up. And uh, the main enemy of the pangolin has become man. Why? Well, believe it or not, there's a big market for the pangolin in Asia for two reasons. One is its flesh, which is thought to be a delicacy, plus it's also thought to be an aphrodisiac, and the scales of the animal. And those are supposed to have therapeutic properties and they are sold as medicine. So poachers get in on the game and cap capture these animals and sell them and get a lot of money for it. The flesh of the pangolin sells for about $600 a kilo. Why do they buy it? They buy it in order to cook it, make a meal out of it, because it supposedly is a delicacy, and as I said, also has aphrodisiac uh, properties. However, the main attraction of the, uh, of the pangolin uh, is uh, its potential health properties. So here, for example, is a wine that is made with pangolin. The pangolin is soaked in rice wine. Uh, and then, of course, you have the scales. And these are uh, roasted and ground up and made into pills, made into a medicine. And this is supposed to be a cure for absolutely everything from diabetes to cancer. And interestingly enough, it is also supposed to be a cure for COVID-19. So here's the interesting story, the pangolin, which is linked to the onset of the disease, has this, this aura of also being uh, combative against the disease. Now, I think we can say quite conclusively that there's no scientific merit in the medicine, supposed medicine made from the scales of the pangolin. It is just keratin. The stuff is exactly the same material as our nails and our hair is composed of. It doesn't have any therapeutic potential, but it is ground up and sold uh, in uh, pill form and there's a huge market for this. And the pangolin has become the most illegally traded animal in the world. And its population has been decreasing dramatically because of this poaching uh, for the two silly reasons. One is, is to eat it and the other uh, to make it into a medicine. Now, how did it cross, how did this virus cross over to, to humans? That isn't exactly clear, um, but perhaps one of the predators of the pangolin, which is man, handling an animal, got infected. And once one got infected, then of course it all started. 
and the, the, the target now seems to be these so-called wet markets in, in, um, in Asia, especially in, in Wuhan, where all kinds of exotic animals are sold and pangolins and pangolin parts were sold. Now, of course, uh, uh, there's no universal agreement on this, but there's pretty good evidence that this is uh, what is happening because uh, of the genetics uh, of this virus. And uh, the, the protein that is needed in order for the virus to latch on to, to receptors on human cells to infect them, uh, there's coding for that protein in the uh, uh, genome of the uh, pangolin. So the story is still evolving. But one thing is for sure, is that ever since there was uh, uh, research implicating the pangolin, sales of pangolin products, of course, have declined because people now, of course, are scared of the virus. So this virus, which is a curse to just about everyone in the world, may be what actually saves this rather interesting animal from extinction. And the trade already has decreased. Uh, the uh, pangolin trade used to be huge in the, the trade in scales. And authorities would often seize large stockpiles of these. Well, this is sort of disappearing now because, of course, uh, there is no market for anything, any product that comes from the pangolin because people, of course, are so scared of this. Unfortunately, in China, there are other medicines that are made from exotic animals. Again, uh, supposedly a cure for everything, including uh, uh, COVID-19. Tiger bones is uh, one of these. Terrible because tigers are poached uh, because of this and there's nothing special about the tiger bone. And then we have bear bile extracts. Now bear bile uh, is widely sold in, in Asia in various forms, as you can see here in capsules or, or in pills. And uh, this is really tragic uh, because of the way that animals are raised in order to extract their bile. Amazingly in China, this is legal. You can have bears in captivity and you can basically keep them in cages and put a catheter into their bile duct and periodically withdraw the bile. Now it turns out that there actually is some medical benefit to, to uh, uh, a compound called ursodicolic acid, which is found in, in, in the bile and that can have an effect on gallstones. But this is irrelevant because this chemical can also be made synthetically in the lab. So there's absolutely no need to torture bears in this fashion. Unfortunately, it is still happening in, uh, in Asia, but now at least with all of this attention being paid to COVID-19, governments are cracking down on the use of wild animals to um, uh, furnish uh, various kinds of uh, uh, supposed medical products. Now, traditional Chinese medicine, of course, is, is ancient. It goes back thousands of years. And the Chinese have been using various kinds of herbs and, and, and um, plant products in order to formulate medicines. And some of these actually do have some value. Uh, for example, artemisinin, which is a, a drug that is now used in the treatment of malaria, uh, evolved out of uh, traditional Chinese medicine. Of course, now it is sold in standardized uh, versions. Uh, it's not just you know, a random mixture of, of plant uh, products. So traditional Chinese medicine has some, some good points, but unfortunately it is also tied into the torch of animals, uh, as I just suggested. 
the Chinese government uh, actually uh, promotes the use of some of these traditional remedies. I, I think that goes back to Mao Zedong, who wanted to show that China can lead the way and that traditional Chinese medicine was comparable to Western medicine. And also in China, uh, many people don't have access to modern medicine and they do have access to traditional medicines. So here, for example, is one that is being promoted now by government authorities in China uh, to treat uh, the coronavirus infection. And it has a, an herb called weeping forsythia, uh, Japanese honeysuckle flowers and ephedra. Now ephedra does have a possible effect because it enhances uh, breathing. And uh, this is a traditional remedy for uh, respiratory problems such as, as asthma. But it is not going to have any kind of curative property on uh, uh, COVID-19. The uh, Chinese, though, are also uh, excellent researchers. So it's this interesting blend of old traditional medicine and modern cutting-edge science. And from China, a great deal of uh, science now emerges, which is, is hopeful and which may lay the foundation to the treatment of COVID-19. For example, a very recent uh, research uh, mapped the uh, exact structure of the protein that is used by the, this virus to replicate. And uh, turns out that once you know the structure of this protein, you can kind of inactivate it by designing a drug that fits into certain sites uh, on this, this protein and that uh, disables it from uh, interacting with, with cells. Now, of course, this is still at a very preliminary stage, uh, but it's just fascinating what can be done. This was done by computer modeling. Uh, they know the structure of, of, of the protein and you can look at the structure on computer and see where there are little pockets in the, in the protein chain into which uh, drugs might be able to fit. And they've actually designed two drugs that fit into those pockets, inactivate this protein. Now, of course, this is still in vitro, that is in a laboratory study. But at least it is interesting because it does present some hope of finding a drug that can be used for treatment. But basically, putting together what is needed in order to solve this problem of COVID-19 is, is, is like playing with a jigsaw puzzle. We have little pieces, we're starting to put them together, but we are still quite a bit away from seeing the whole picture. We've learned a lot uh, about this virus. Dr. About Schwartz. The virus, yes. I see we have a question here coming in from the audience. The question is, there are types of coronavirus that are not COVID-19, such as common cold strains. How does this impact serological testing of the presence of coronavirus in the community? Okay, we'll answer that, but let's leave the other questions to the end, okay? Let me- Okay, no okay. problem. All right, uh, coronaviruses are a general class of viruses and so-called because when you look under a microscope, it looks like they have a crown, that's the, the corona. And those are these little outcroppings of the protein that I, uh, I mentioned. But there are many different kinds of coronaviruses. And as I suggested, the cold virus, the flu virus, all fall into the same category, but they have a different chemical makeup in terms of the protein. So if you have an infection by uh, the flu virus or the cold virus, that does not protect you uh, from uh, COVID-19 because the antibodies that form 
in response to those viruses are not the same antibodies that would form in response to COVID-19. So coronavirus is a general term, and just because you had infection by one, it does not offer uh, protection against uh, uh, this one. All right, so what is it that we can actually do again with this uh, uh, coronavirus? Well, we've learned already what, what doesn't work, uh, despite the urgings of some people like uh, President Trump, hydroxychloroquine uh, has failed in, in almost all of the clinical trials. Uh, so there is, really is nothing there. There's a bit more hope with uh, remdesivir, which is an antiviral compound, and you probably heard about this because there was a lot of commotion about it uh, during the last two weeks, uh, it does reduce the number of days <clears throat> that someone who is going to recover <clears throat> from this infection takes. So instead of uh, 15 or 16 days, they may recover in 11 days. That's not a huge difference, but at least it is something that, that does work. The question is, will it reduce mortality? Will it reduce the number of people who are dying? We don't know that yet. And also, of course, there's going to be the problem if it does work, uh, do we have enough to treat the uh, population that would require treatment? But at least here is something that does present some iota of, of, of hope. And believe it or not, so does aspirin, because it is now turning out that a lot of the problems associated with COVID-19 are due to what are called microthrombi, tiny little blood clots that form in response to the virus. And aspirin, of course, has an anticoagulant effect. And there are some interesting, again, very preliminary studies showing that people who are um, in a serious way with uh, COVID-19 do somewhat better if they are treated with an anticoagulant such as aspirin or heparin. This does not mean that anyone should start taking aspirin in order to prevent the disease. It doesn't prevent the disease. The question is whether or not once someone has come down with a serious uh, version of the disease, will these anticoagulants help? And I think we're going to have an answer to that relatively soon because a lot of institutions are now trying the anticoagulant uh, therapy. There's also some hope with uh, cannabis. Uh, cannabis, of course, is a very complex mixture of compounds. And um, this recent study that got a lot of publicity from um, uh, University of Lethbridge, uh, because researchers showed that uh, an extract of uh, cannabis sativa uh, could impair the attachment of the virus to cells. However, very important to understand that this was, once again, a laboratory study. Now, in order for this virus to get into a human cell, it has to first attach itself to a receptor, which is called the angiotensin converting enzyme 2, ACE2 receptor. These are protein molecules that sit on the surface of a cell. And when the virus attaches, uh, then it can start to invade the cell. Well, it turns out that with uh, cannabis, the production of this uh, ACE2 is prevented inside of the cell where it normally is, is formed. Uh, so there is some interesting uh, aspect to this and there's some hope, but once again, nobody should start taking any kind of supplement to prevent this from happening. I mean, it's a theoretical possibility. We'll have to have some clinical trials because of course we don't know that taking cannabis is safe in someone who is suffering from COVID. And furthermore, uh, 
there's also always a question of exactly which component of the cannabis oil is, uh, is operative here. Is it the cannabidiol? Is it maybe THC? Or is it one of the 400 other compounds that one finds in uh, cannabis uh, oil? So uh, obviously we'll keep a watch on this to see uh, where it uh, goes to. There's a lot of publicity these days about boosting our immunity. And numerous products are sold and of course, the whole idea here is that if your immune system works better, it will be able to ward off the virus. Now, the whole concept of boosting the immunity is kind of a, a false concept. Why? Because the immune system is a very, very complex system. It is the system that protects the body from foreign invaders, but it has so many aspects, starting with the skin. The skin, of course, is a barrier against, former, against outside substances. Then we have numerous glands that produce chemicals that ward off invaders. We have the bone marrow that produces white blood cells that interact with, with invaders. So the immune system is a very complex system and there's no one thing that can boost the activity of all the aspects of the immune system. And furthermore, you may not want to do that because there are many diseases that are so-called autoimmune diseases, where the body's immune system attacks itself, things like arthritis, multiple sclerosis. These are autoimmune diseases. And indeed, when you get a cold and your nose starts to run and you get all this mucus formation, that's because your immune system is being boosted. It is trying to get rid of the invader. So it is not always beneficial to just sort of generally boost the uh, immune system. So it, that really is not a scientific concept. Now it is true that there are ways to affect certain parts of the immune system. And this is where marketing really gets, uh, gets into it. I will just run through with you a few of the substances that are out there both in pharmacies and in health food stores, which are claimed to be effective against viral infections. Now they are very careful, of course, in choosing the words, uh, because if you make a claim on a product that this is effective against COVID-19 uh, without any proof, that would make it into an illegal product. So they're very careful. They say that it has been shown to have some antiviral activity in some laboratory tests or, or, or whatever. The fact is that none of the ones that I'm going to show you here now have any human clinical evidence. And that's what we look for, is human trials, double-blind trials, where a group of subjects is given the substance, a group, another group matched in every way is given a placebo, and then we see what happens. But the ones that are being promoted here, because of some smidgen of evidence found in the laboratory, usually in tissue culture, that is in cells, has shown some antiviral effect. So we have astragalus, then we have uh, black, elderberry extract, uh, Sambucol is the trade name for it. This has been shown to have some moderate effect on reducing the symptoms of the common cold or maybe even the flu, but no one has tested this against COVID-19. Lysine is an amino acid that does have an antiviral effect on the herpes simplex virus, the virus that, that get on our, our, our mouth, but that doesn't mean it has any effect on COVID-19. Then things like melatonin have been uh, implicated, N-acetylcysteine. Uh, again, uh, you can always dredge up some study that shows that there might be some, some connection. But so far, nothing that is really impactive. 
olive leaf extract is also being promoted. Uh, so is vitamin K. Now, vitamin K is important in many ways for the body. I mean, the term vitamin, of course, implies that it is vital to the body, but nobody has shown that this is effective against COVID-19. And then you have sort of the general tonics that are being promoted, like ginseng, uh, which is supposed to be good for whatever ails you. And it does have some stimulant properties, but again, nothing to battle COVID-19. Garlic, garlic is great for cooking with, uh, good taste. And there are some studies that have shown reduced blood pressure with, with uh, garlic, and uh, it does have some antibiotic effect against bacteria, but of course, COVID-19 is not a bacterial disease. But nevertheless, with clever wording, it is being promoted. So is echinacea. Uh, echinacea is an extract of a flower, some moderate effect in reducing the symptoms of the common cold, but again, nothing with COVID-19. And apple cider vinegar, very popular for absolutely everything, is being promoted for everything from weight loss to uh, treating viral diseases, none of which is scientifically uh, sound. So is there anything, though, that offers some hope, anything that has more than just a smidgen of, of evidence? Well, zinc is one of these. Zinc is, is a, a part of many enzymes that are used by cells of the immune system. And uh, it does make sense to take some supplements of zinc when someone has a, a, a viral disease, but you don't want to overdo this because large doses of zinc can be toxic. Now, 50 to 80 milligrams a day when someone is suffering from a viral infection may do some good. It is not curative. It just helps with some of the symptoms. Then we also have some uh, interesting claims made on behalf of probiotics. Probiotics are bacteria, and uh, these are the so-called beneficial bacteria. There are a lot of bacteria that live inside our body. In fact, there are more bacterial cells in our body than human cells, or more bacteria than human. Uh, and some of these bacteria are, are beneficial in the sense that they squeeze out the disease-causing bacteria. But how could this have any effect on, on COVID-19, which is not a bacterial disease? Well, it turns out that, that uh, these beneficial bacteria also secrete some antiviral compounds. And uh, there's interesting research about some of these. The trouble is that nobody knows exactly which particular bacterium we need and how much of it we need. Uh, but probiotics, uh, at least, are not totally gimmicky. There is, is some scientific evidence uh, for, for their benefit. And we also know that populations that eat a lot of fermented foods, which are very high in these probiotics, and these are the things like you know, yogurt and kimchi and sauerkraut, uh, that these have some beneficial uh, effects. But again, we're waiting for some good clinical evidence here. Vitamin C is extremely popular. And uh, ever since Linus Pauling uh, introduced this as a treatment for the common cold, uh, which was a real curiosity because there was no evidence for this. And had he not been the famous uh, scientist that he was, people would not have paid any attention to this. It is, however, true that vitamin C plays a role in the immune system. That's true. Uh, but there are many, many substances that play a role in, in proper immune function. And it doesn't mean that uh, vitamin C can be curative. I think that we do need to make sure that we get enough vitamin C in our diet to fulfill the body's needs, but that's pretty easy to do because we only need oh, 30 to 40 milligrams a day, and you find that in, in, in our diet. 
Now, whether or not taking larger doses is beneficial uh, is arguable. Uh, some people suggest that it will have uh, some therapeutic property for the cold. Uh, but uh, when you take a look at the clinical studies, they really are not very, very impactive. But you know, with COVID-19, when we don't have any good treatment, uh, it is worth trying just about everything. And in China, they're actually trying intravenous injections of uh, vitamin C. And they're using huge doses. They're using things like 25 grams a day, uh, intravenously infused. And this is, of course, not something that anyone should ever attempt to do at home or ever take 25 grams orally at home. It will give you terrible diarrhea and it can also lead to uh, kidney stones. So until we see more research on this, uh, nobody can recommend overdosing on vitamin C. I don't think that there's a problem in taking uh, up to a thousand milligrams a day. That's not going to give you diarrhea. It may offer some protection. I can't give you any hard evidence for that, but at least this is not a totally nonsensical thing to do. Now, there's some interesting research about a botanical product, and some of this is being done in Montreal here by Michel Chrétien, who interestingly happens to be the brother of our former prime minister, Jean Chrétien. And uh, this is some research uh, that uh, involves quercetin, uh, quercetin is uh, widely found in all kinds of fruits and vegetables. It is one of these molecules that we refer to as a polyphenol, and that's a reference to its specific molecular structure. And the research on this really began in China, and uh, they looked at uh, the anti-inflammatory and immune-enhancing properties of, of quercetin. But again, this was in laboratory studies and a few animal studies. It is worthwhile pursuing this because it turns out that molecular modeling shows that the structure of the quercetin molecule is a structure that can fit into the protein molecule that the virus uses to kind of serve as the key into that ACE2 receptor that I, I, I talked about. So this certainly is worth pursuing. Now, whether or not at this point taking quercetin supplement is beneficial, uh, nobody knows because nobody has done the clinical trial. And uh, there are clinical trials underway right now, so we will have an answer to this. But taking moderate amounts of quercetin at least is, is, is not dangerous. Uh, on the other hand, it is better to get this nutrient from food. So eating lots of fruits and vegetables is what is recommended. There's a whole slew of supposed antiviral supplements out there on the market. These are very loosely regulated. Uh, natural health products do not undergo the same kind of studies as, as uh, prescription drugs. So this one, for example, Novarin, uh, this takes the research that I already mentioned about quercetin and applies it. Uh, this product contains a, a mixture of quercetin. It also has some green tea extract, which also gives you a different kind of polyphenol, some cinnamon and licorice extracts, and e each of these has some polyphenol in it that supposedly has Im immune enhancing uh, uh, properties. Now here, at least there was a clinical trial that I was able to, to dredge up. It wasn't of course about the virus that we're talking about, but at least it, it did suggest that this has significant antiviral uh, effects. But let's not get too excited about this because it turns out that this study is questionable. Uh, this, um, correction was published in the journal, and uh, it talks about how 
the researchers did not disclose that uh, uh, they actually had some interest in, in, in this product, financial interest. And also there were some methodolo methodological problems here. So at this point, uh, I don't think that anyone can recommend uh, Novarin. But where there is some real excitement is with uh, vitamin D. And here we get into some real science. And uh, I want to describe this to you from beginning to end, because uh, I think we can say that, uh, especially here in Canada, in the winter, where we don't get all that much sunshine, it probably is a good investment to take a supplement of vitamin D. All right, so let's get going with this particular supplement, which actually may have some benefit in COVID-19. Our story starts with Justus von Liebig, a chemist, one of the best known chemists of the uh, early 1800s in, in Germany. Uh, Liebig was, was a classical figure in the history of, of chemistry, many, many things. Uh, he was interested in agriculture. He was the first person to realize that certain nutrients had to be present in fertilizer to, to grow crops. He designed all kinds of interesting glassware. I mean, he, he, he was one big brain. He also was interested in nutrition. And he thought that um, it was a combination of proteins, various minerals, uh, fats, and carbohydrates that we needed to eat to sustain ourselves. Now remember that this was in the early 1800s. This was very early in, in, in science. So this was quite, you know, quite insightful to try to, to identify exactly what the human body needed in terms of, uh, of nutrition. Now, of course, eventually we would find out that uh, there were uh, other components that came to be called vitamins that, that were needed in the diet as well. But Liebig got nutrition really started. And interestingly enough, he was also the first person to promote dietary supplements. There was a financial interest here to be sure, but he came up with Liebig's extract of meat. And meat was of course thought to be high in protein and, and therefore nutritious. And he showed how you could take uh, 40 pounds of meat and, and uh, condense it all into a dietary supplement. And this became actually a popular product, Liebig's extract of meat, uh, both in order to add flavor to food that was being cooked and also uh, to enhance health. So Liebig was really the first one to become interested in, in nutrition. That's why our story with vitamin D starts there. But then it continues. Now Liebig and they made a number of contributions to, to nutrition, most of which uh, now have been superseded with modern science. But interestingly enough, he also thought that chocolate was the perfect food. Well, it may not be the perfect food. It does have a taste that a lot of people like. So as you can see, Liebig was a historic figure in the history of, uh, of nutrition and in general in chemistry. And Erna, Elmer McCullum, became very interested in the work of Liebig. He was an American biochemist. And um, again, in the late 1800s, when he started his work, there was a lot of attention being paid to nutrition because this was an evolving uh, area. And he did some studies on rats. Now he, of course, had read all about Liebig's work and uh, decided to test just what proportion of these nutrients was needed. And he did this on rats. But he found something interesting, that when he took the ratio of proteins, minerals, fats, carbohydrates that, that Liebig recommended, the rats failed to thrive. 
he didn't really understand how this was. But then he began to add other components to the diet to see if he could find an answer to this mystery. And he discovered that when he added cod liver oil, of all things, to the diet of the rats, the rats became healthier. They grew in a totally normal fashion. So he knew that there was something in cod liver oil that was needed for proper growth, that was not found in the so-called macronutrients, the proteins, the carbohydrates, and the fats, and, and the minerals. Now, this eventually came to be called vitamin A. Although McCullum never was able to isolate it, he, he just knew that there was something in cod liver oil that allowed the rats to grow normally. Eventually, it became known as vitamin A. Now, the term vitamin was actually coined by a Polish chemist by the name of Casimir Funk. And therein lies another interesting story because Funk was familiar with the word of Christian Eichmann, a scientist, uh, a Dutch scientist who had done a lot of work in the Dutch East Indies. And in the Dutch in the East Indies, many people suffered from beriberi, a terrible condition that leads to total body weakness. And it turned out, as Eichmann discovered, that the difference between natives who came down with this disease and those who did not was that the ones who came down with beriberi had a diet of white rice. Others ate brown rice. And he wondered what was going on here. So he studied rice and discovered that there was a chemical, eventually called thiamine, which prevented beriberi. It had to be present in very small doses in the body, but it was essential. Now, this molecule thiamine had what we call a functional group, an NH2 group on it, and that in chemical terms is what we refer to as an amine. So this was an amine, and it was vital to life, and therefore he coined the term vital amine, and eventually that got contracted to vitamine, with an E at the end. Eventually, that E was removed. And indeed, he himself, Casimir Funk himself, said that he realized that while this was an essential nutrient and it was an amine, he thought that there might be other molecules that did not fit this general class, that they were not amines, but would also be necessary from the diet. So he, he said, let's use the term vitamin without the E added. And of course, this is what we have today. So vitamins are substances that are needed to be present in the diet because the body cannot produce them and we do not need them in large amounts, very often in microgram or milligram amounts. Anyway, McCollum, based upon his research with, with substances present, he didn't identify exactly what it was, that were needed in the diet. So he coined this expression, eat what you want after you have eaten what you should so that there were nutrients that we had to have. This was a statement that captured the attention of Sir Edward Mellonby uh, in, uh, in Great Britain. Mellonby was a scientist who was very interested in rickets. Rickets is a terrible disease where the bones do not form properly, and this was epidemic in England at that time. Today, we understand why. They didn't know at that time. Uh, there was very little exposure to sun and therefore there was very little formation of vitamin D in their, in their body. Anyway, he was interested in this. And he also knew that the diet of the Scots was very limited. 
It was mostly based on oats, all kinds of things made of oats. And he wondered whether or not this limited diet was a problem because he knew about the word of, work of McCullough. So he wondered, you know, could there be something missing in the Scott diet? So he followed in the footsteps of McCullum, but instead of using rats, he used dogs. And he put the dogs on a diet that was very similar to what the Scots ate, and the dogs developed rickets. And then he fed them cod liver oil, just like McCullum had done. And believe it or not, the dogs recovered and became happy and healthy. Now, interestingly enough, the only reason this experiment worked was because his dogs had been kept in cages indoors in a lab. Had they been exposed to the sun, they would have never developed rickets, as we were, of course, later to, to find out. But anyway, he concluded that vitamin A also cures rickets. It was the wrong conclusion, because it was indeed something in the cod liver oil that worked, but as we later found out, it wasn't vitamin A, it was vitamin D. So he came to the wrong conclusion, but he had done the experiment very, very carefully. And he had shown that there was something in cod liver oil that prevented rickets. And uh, this started the, the uh, uh, process of giving cod liver oil to children in schools. And I remember when I was in elementary school in Hungary, we did have to line up just like this in order to get that spoonful of cod liver oil. And once you tasted that spoonful of cod liver oil, you would remember that for the rest of your life. Now, as I'm talking about this, I can actually taste that foul taste in, in my mouth, but it did prevent uh, rickets. Well, in the 1930s though, uh, McCollum had shown that it actually wasn't vitamin A that was responsible for preventing rickets because he was still interested in cod liver oil and he passed some oxygen gas through the cod liver oil and that was known to destroy vitamin A. So if there was no vitamin A in there, what was it? And of course, as we will see, it turned out to be vitamin D. But important contribution was made by Kurt Holchinski and Henrietta Chick in, in England. And uh, they were the ones who discovered that there was another way to prevent rickets. And that was exposure to sunlight. So we had these two approaches, cod liver oil and sunshine that prevented rickets. So children already were being exposed to, to sunshine indoors, the so-called quartz lamps, with, which uh, generated ultraviolet B. And this also was already being done in the 1940s and very popularly in the, 19, uh, in the 1950s. So the question is, what was this link between cod liver oil and sunshine? And of course, as we now know, that link is vitamin D, vitamin D. How come this link between cod liver oil and, and sunshine? Well, it's interesting story. It turns out that, that vitamin D is actually somewhat of a misnomer because it isn't technically a vitamin. The definition of a vitamin is something that has to be in the diet. Well, vitamin D doesn't literally have to be in the diet because it can form in the skin upon exposure to sunlight from precursors. Now this precursor dehydrocholesterol is formed in the body from uh, components in, in the diet. But when we're exposed to sunlight, a series of chemical reactions takes place that converts the dehydrocholesterol into vitamin D3. Now vitamin D3 is also what is found in fish oils. 
and in a variety of, of dietary supplements that we now have available. And uh, these, uh, vitamin D3 and vitamin D2 in the liver and in the kidneys eventually get converted into the biologically active form, which is 125-dihydroxy vitamin D. And this uh, has the effect of enhancing bone structure by uh, allowing absorption of calcium. Uh, so this is the connection between sunshine and vitamin D. So vitamin D is available in pill form, or we can go and expose ourselves to the sun. But the story becomes more interesting now in connection with COVID-19, because it turns out that vitamin D, in addition to calcium absorption and regulating bone formation, has numerous other activities in the body. It actually acts as a hormone. So it, it, it will improve muscle strength. Uh, it has uh, an effect on uh, insulin secretion. It can in increase insulin secretion. And most importantly, it also has an effect on regulating the immune system. And this, of course, is where the connection to COVID-19 comes in. And we are beginning to see published research uh, along these lines. In this particular case, researchers looked at countries in Europe, 20 different countries, and uh, they looked at records uh, of uh, uh, measurements of vitamin D in the blood of people. And there, these records are available because uh, these measurements have been done by, by researchers. And they looked at the incidence of mortality in those countries from COVID-19. And what they found was very interesting. When they went through the scientific literature and they looked at values of vitamin D uh, in, in the bloodstream, they found that where the uh, average blood level was low, that's where the mortality was the highest in these countries. And uh, there are a number of other studies that are now supporting this. Uh, we know that in countries that are in the north uh, of, the, of the equator, there is a greater incidence of a variety of diseases, including multiple sclerosis, and also greater mortality from COVID-19. Not necessarily greater incidence, but greater mortality. And here is the, the plot of the study that I just mentioned uh, from these uh, numerous countries. And they looked at the uh, mortality relative to the degrees uh, of, of latitude. And as you can see, plotted along the x-axis uh, is the degrees of latitude. And as we go more and more north, uh, the mortality increases. And uh, as we go south, there is a reduced mortality. Now, of course, this is just an association, and an association can never prove a cause and effect relationship. But uh, it is certainly interesting to, to uh, ponder this. So at this point, I think that one can make the argument that taking uh, a dose of vitamin D, uh, usually is available as, as D3, about 1,000 IU a day, uh, is to be recommended. There is no downside to this. Nobody has shown any kind of negative effect of taking this dose of vitamin D. Nobody's saying, of course, that it is going to prevent COVID-19. However, what the evidence seems to suggest, which we have just been looking at, is that once someone gets the disease, there is a chance that the symptoms will be less severe if vitamin D levels in the blood are, uh, are high enough. And this, this is at least a little bit of optimism there because there are actually some scientific evidence uh, here.
But I also want to finish off by just warning you about some of the quack items that are out there. Because as you know, whenever science fails to fill a void, the quacks will rush in and fill it, often with very seductive uh, information, but it happens to be nonsensical. For example, miracle mineral solution is a concoction of, of uh, two substances that you mix together and uh, consume it. This, uh, they claim, kills the virus in the body. When you mix these two, it forms chlorine dioxide, which, which is a bleaching agent. This is absolute nonsense. It cannot kill the virus inside of the body. Nothing kills the virus once it has infected cells. Uh, this, however, can be highly toxic. Uh, as sort of a, a corollary to this one is this virus shutout, which is very popular in Asia. It's a thing that you hang around your neck and it supposedly releases chlorine dioxide. And every time that you inhale, you inhale some of this to kill the virus. There's zero evidence and zero plausibility for this. And then we have people like Pastor Jim Baker rec recommending colloidal silver. Now silver does have some antibacterial properties, but it has no effect on the uh, coronavirus. Uh, he has uh, been reprimanded for this uh, and uh, his uh, uh, promotion of this has been removed from YouTube and, and uh, he uh, has ceased uh, doing this. But there are many others who are still promoting colloidal silver and numerous other uh, products uh, which have no efficacy uh, uh, whatsoever, but they make for very um, uh, romanticized arguments for these things. And you never know what is going to be promoted. And I, I just want to relate this little story uh, to you. Uh, in terms of a quackery. A few years ago, I was talking about this particular product, uh, which was then being promoted as a cure for just about everything. And uh, I looked at this uh, and looked at the ingredients and all it had was uh, organic wheat and grain alcohol. And of course, that's not going to be effective against any bacterial disease or any viral disease, but this was being promoted as a cure for, for everything. And I went on at length uh, once on the radio about how nonsensical this was and how there was absolutely no scientific evidence. There was no plausibility of anything in here having that kind of effect. And I thought I did a pretty good job. What is the first call I get after spending about five minutes talking about how nonsensical this product was? I answered the phone. What was the first question? Where can I buy it? So sometimes you feel you just can't win. No, don't go looking for colloidal silver. Don't look, go looking for miracle mineral supplement. These are total uh, nonsense. But the vitamin D, that's something else. In the meantime, of course, we wait. We wait for uh, the vaccine, uh, which may or may not happen. I think chances are that we will have a number of vaccines that can work. Uh, they will not work in everyone. They will never work with 100% uh, effectiveness because no vaccine does. But then at least we will be able to perhaps get back to some sort of normalcy in life. And of course, we're all craving that. But it's going to be a while before we uh, experience a scene like this again, unfortunately, because this is a situation uh, like which we have never seen before. And uh, while there is still no light at the end of the tunnel, there may be just a little bit of glimmer with some of the research that is, is coming out. And if you want to keep more up to date on what is happening, uh, our website is mcgill.ca/oss. And of course, you can always email me 
at the address that you see here, and we answer all email uh, questions. This situation changes not, not by the week, not by the day, but virtually by the hour. And you never know what the next hour is, uh, is going to bring. So uh, that's about it. I hope I gave you a little bit of insight in, into some of the supplements that are being looked at and which may or may not have some efficacy. So Danielle, is there any question out there now that we can answer? Okay, hello, Dr. Schwartz. I don't see any other questions in the Q&A, um, but if anyone out there has a question who called in, please raise your hand and then I'll be able to see it and we'll be able to take your call. Okay, I see something right now. Uh, yes, hi. I'd like to know, are there any contraindications with some of these vitamins for people who take different medications for high blood pressure, uh, uh, cholesterol, uh, whatever? Very good question. Uh, as far as vitamins go, no. But as far as herbal yeah, supplements yeah, go, there can be some very serious complications. For example, people who take something like St. John's wort, which is a, a, a herbal medication, that can interact So there are a number of herbal medications that can interact with prescription drugs. Of course, prescription drugs can interact with other prescription drugs. But uh, as, as far as vitamins go, when they are taken in the normal dose, such as you might find in a regular multivitamin, uh, there's no indication that those will interact with uh, uh, medication. There are a, a few cases where you know, there may be some concern. For example, with vitamin K, uh, someone who has bleeding disorders or someone you know, who is someone uh, who's taking a medication uh, for a bleeding disorder, uh, like an anticoagulant, like Coumadin, uh, they have to be careful about intake of vitamin K. So yeah, there are those kind of uh, interactions, but that's interaction with, with the disease, not necessarily with the drug that you're, you're taking. But even in that case, the, the amount of vitamin K that would be present in a multivitamin tablet would not be enough to cause a problem. Um, so it's from Helena P. Thank you very much for giving these lectures. I enjoy your show on CJAD also. And her question is, how can I sanitize the disposable masks to prolong their use? Could dish detergent and drying it with a hairdryer do the job? No, no, the disposable masks are disposable. They are not meant to be uh, reconditioned. Uh, the, the masks that uh, people are wearing now are the cloth masks which do offer some protection and those can be washed, washed and dried and that, that's fine. But the, uh, the or, ordinary surgical masks are, are one-time use. Uh, I, I would imagine that, uh, you know, if you uh, put them in the oven, it probably would uh, kill any virus that is on there, but no one is really uh, suggesting, uh, suggesting that. Well, one thing that we can say is that if you put it aside for a couple of days, uh, the virus will, will, will be gone. Uh, the virus does not stay active on those masks for more than a couple of days. So if you have a few of those masks, you can kind of rotate them and you know, use one and then put it away for two days in a paper bag. And then two days later, you can use that one. So if you have two or three masks, you can solve the problem like that. Although uh, uh, with the masks, uh, I think in some cases, people are overdoing it when you're out alone walking on the street. Uh, going for your daily walk, which is a good thing to do. I don't think that a mask is needed. You're not going to catch this uh, disease by passing someone on the street. 
this disease is, is transmitted mostly indoors from someone who's infected, then you have to spend some time uh, with them in close proximity. Uh, just passing someone on the street is not going to do it. Thank you very much for uh, your answers and for your excellent lecture today, Dr. Schwartz. Well, thank you, and we will do this again. And uh, as I was saying, by that time, we will have a lot more information uh, that has emerged about things that may work. And uh, we're sure we will have a lot more quackery that has emerged about things will not work. So that is today's episode of the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service. If you called in or joined us on Zoom, thank you very much. Have a great day. Bye-bye.